I was thinking about getting a bidet on Amazon. It's totally worth it. I think it's a good idea. But they are worth it if you have a little bit of the extra money. Mine was only like 20 bucks. Get a heated one. That is nice. Mm. Mine is not, but it totally gets the job done. That's all that matters. <laughs> I think you're the only one that actually uses it in the house. I know. He's been worried about our toilet paper supply. And I was like, you know what? If you start using that bidet, that'll help cut things down. And it's good for the environment. And it gets things cleaner, too. And he just looked at me like, if he doesn't acknowledge it, he doesn't have to think about butts being cleaned by water. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey guys, you're listening to the Mostly Bi-Weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. This time around, somebody's audio was fucked, and I'm not going to say whose audio, but it was bad, so hey. we are re-recording. Hey, no one <laughs> needs to know that we are doing a do-over, okay? Life happens. That's true. And Life does happen. You know what? I feel like... We have time. We have time right now. That is one thing we have plenty of. We have so much time. I'm going insane a little bit. It's fine. I, I'm not. I got plenty of studio work to do. So, um. <laughs> I'm really just honestly lots of pole dancing. Lots and lots of pole dancing. She makes her mother proud. My mom loves me. <laughs> Hi, mom. No, it's good for core body strength and upper body. That's pretty killer. Anyways, I keep telling her she should join me. And she's like, no. And I'm like, why? And she's like, no, I can't do that. And I was like, you know what? When I started, I couldn't do it either. Let's do this thing. You got to start somewhere. I One day. One day. Let's see. Just like today, we're going to start with your second part of your vaccination group of women about tetanus and measles and mumps and yeah, so that kind of. You're shaking no. your head no. I'm kind of close. One of them is part of the mix. <laughs> it is the DTP vaccine. Originally, the DTP vaccine is now called the DTAP vaccine. And I learned a little bit about that between the last time we recorded and this time, which I'll get to in a second. We're going to, basically, we learned about our diphtheria last week. We also learned about the tetanus, which is the T in the DDP. But today, we're going to explore pertussis. Yeah, I have no idea what that is, guys. Um, but that's okay, because today, we're going to do a second and a half of some woman who covered some really significant vaccinations here in the United States and worldwide. And then for my half, doing something a little different, we're covering some art patrons. Because it's kind of important to buy some art right now. So support your artists, yo. Yo, we we need it right now. But we've got your your T P D B B B P D T T P. You sound like me when I was learning all the different vaccines for animals when I first started out as a veterinary assistant. Yeah. Uh, There's one particular vaccine for cats called the FVRCP vaccine. And all of those letters were all sorts of everywhere when I was trying to learn it. (laughs) It's like the RVF. What is it again? The kitty cat one. 
the kitty cat one. Uh, the kitty distemper is what most people like to call it. And really, all of these vaccines, they're just acronyms for what's in them. They're an all-in-one situation. So with the FBRCP, it's the feline rhinotracheitis, uh, Khaleesi virus, and the, the panleukopenia. Cool. I have n- no idea what any of that means. <laughs> it's just easier to go kitty distemper and everything's fine. So when people go in for their for their DTP vaccines, whether they're being vaccinated while they're pregnant or whether their child is old enough to get their first round, I'm sure they don't know it by name. I'm sure they're like, the, the, the baby one, the, the combo. And then the doctor will be like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's fine. It's universal. doesn't matter what kind of baby you have. It's human. That's all that matters. <laughs> so... While Dr. Anna Wessels-Williams from last episode was finding the key strain to a diphtheria vaccine and being elected president of the Women's Medical Society of New York, four more women warriors of science were being born. We're going to rewind to the first lady that we are highlighting today. Her name was Layla Alice Daughtry. She was born February 1st in 1898 in Portal, Georgia. She was born to an Ellerby and Alice Cornelia Daughtry. I love the names of her parents. <laughs> yeah, that's some super on point, like, country farmer names from <laughs> the 19th century. All I can think of is the American Gothic. That is it. <laughs> she was one of 12 children. Do they all live to, like, adulthood? I don't know. I mean, because, I mean, sometimes that time it's like a 50-50 shot. Like, yeah, at some point you had, like, 11 siblings, but now there's only five that are over 20. You know, that's not something I got when I was reading about her. I have no idea what happened to her 11 other siblings. Also, yeah. can you imagine shoving 11 babies out of your vagina? 12 babies, excuse me. Our 12. first episode of this season with Anna Moses, she... Yes. She had children in the late 1800s, and she had 10, but only five of them made it to adulthood. Still, but just the act of giving birth that many times. I mean, just think, you're almost continuously pregnant for, like, a decade. That's, no, just yeah, none of that. I know. None of that. Um, anyway, after high school, she went to Tift College to study being a teacher, but, you know, that's not why we're here. She was a high school teacher for about two years, and then she studied at Mercer University while she was being a teacher, and then enrolled into medical school because she wasn't allowed to follow her fiancé to his post in the Dutch Indies, so she decided to do something else. She was in the military, so she was like, yo, medical school? Medical school. She's the only woman in her graduating class in 1928 of the Medical College of Georgia and the third ever woman in the history of the college to graduate medical school. I mean, great, though, that she had the opportunity and wasn't, like, just shut out completely. Yeah, she didn't, like, just stay at home and wait for her husband to get back. She was like, meh, what can I do? Yeah. Well, knowing that she had the chance to enroll as opposed yeah. to the school yeah, yeah, being yeah. like, no, sorry, you don't have a penis. Or how it was, like, a joke where an entire class, like, they voted as a joke to let her in. They didn't think she would actually show up on the first day, and then she did, like, our Elizabeth Blackwell. Yep. So the same year she graduated medical school, her fiancé came back, and they got married June 11th, 
And then her second internship was at the Children's Hospital here in Philadelphia, which was awesome. I really honestly think that back then, if you didn't show up at the University of Pennsylvania, that you weren't, like, you just, you always, it was like a train station, you know, like Grand Central. You just show up, you do your thing, and you leave. And that was just expected of you, honestly. I mean, I don't, I don't recall a lot of people that you've done having, like, stopping at UPenn. A good chunk of my, like, of the medical women, they ended up in Pennsylvania one way or another. Yeah, but she was like, nah, I don't like it here in Philly. By 1931, she opened her own private pediatric practice back home in Georgia. By 1932, an epidemic of whooping cough found its way into the community, and Dr. Denmark was like, that's not good. So she started studying the disease intently for the next six years. She partnered with a dude named Eli Lilly and researchers at Emory University and developed the first whooping cough vaccine, or one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. And she published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that took her the full six years as well. And we are going to get back to that in a second, but we're going to continue on with her life. Once she finished that, uh, she continued to see children in her Georgia community, wrote two books, one by herself and another with one of the women whose children she looked after, Medea Bowman. In both mm-hmm. books, she preached preventative medicine, so little things here and there that could help keep your kid healthy, things like, oh, I don't know, not smoking around them and having them drink water instead of the processed juice shit. All common sense now, but she started practicing in the 30s, and she was always ahead of the curve when it came to healthier practices for children. So she was, it all seems like, okay, cool, great, but like back then she was the only one standing up going, maybe don't do that thing. I mean, we still have people who don't have that same common sense so her book was called every child should have a chance and the one she co-wrote with Medea was called dr denmark said it advice for mothers from america's most experienced pediatrician so with that second one dr denmark looked bowman in the face and said quote why don't you publish your own book you have five children have you learned some things so why not make it a blend of our advice so that's honestly what happened, and that's really cool that this doctor who's been doing this forever was like, you know, I like you. We should both co-write this instead of her being, hey, I'm the doctor, and it's only yeah. me. And she, she was very much like a community player, and that's wonderful. Like, that's what you need. This book happened in 2002. A little a little bit of a delay, because you said she was started her practice in, like, the 1930s. Oh, yeah. See, she did retire in 2001, and the only reason she retired was because her eyesight was getting a little worse for the wear. Mm-hmm. And she, but she was ending up practicing on grandchildren of some of her first patients. Oh, that's so wild. Right? It's crazy. So you did you did kind of the math, but basically she practiced for 70 straight years and retired at the age of 103. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Based off of the people we've covered, when they're focused on something, they will live forever. Forever and ever. I mean, that's not the first person we've covered in this podcast that has lived to be over 100 years old. No. And a good many of them make close. it to their late 80s and 90s. We're not even sorry about it. The beauty of it, though, is that she died in 2011. So 10 years later, she was 113 years old. So, like, she had 10 years of retirement just doing her own damn thing. That is so wild. I know. And it's funny because when, like, people kept asking her, like, what do you contribute to your long life? Like, what's going on? She basically said, you keep on doing what you do best as long as you can. 
I enjoyed every minute of it for more than 70 years. If I could live it all over again, I'd do exactly the same thing and marry the same man. Oh, nice. I know. <laughs> She's so sweet. Uh, but yeah, no, she was like a huge community player. She made strides in the pertussis vaccine. But we do need to stop and think about the vaccine that she created because I'm celebrating her life and the positive effect that this woman had on the health of the children in her community. But her vaccine wasn't perfect. Many of the other pertussis vaccines that popped up after that in different countries and even in the United States weren't perfect either. So whooping cough was a straight-up puzzle for most scientists. The efficacy of each vaccine created never seemed to properly stick. So there's a quote from the American Medical Association's Council on Pharmacy and Chemistry. And it basically says, There was no evidence, even for the presumptive value of stock or commercial vaccines, because the pertussis vaccine seemed to have absolutely no influence as a preventative. And after the disease is thoroughly established, even freshly prepared vaccines seem useless. Oh, lovely. Okay. That's useless. So people were like, I don't even know why we're bothering because this is, yeah. Yeah. On top of that, widespread and extensive studies to help further a better understanding of whooping cough was hard to come by. Two wars and the Great Depression in between were throwing labs that weren't focused on war efforts and general sanitation for a loop. People weren't much worried about specific diseases. So we're going to rewind back one more time to the years 1890, 1900, and 1915. And we're going to check on our final three ladies. And these are the women that people think of when they think of the pertussis vaccine and basically the success behind it. Okay. And that's the one that helps keep your small, sticky baby children alive. Exactly. <laughs> so we have Pearl Kendrick, born August 24th in 1890 in Wheaton, Illinois. Grace Eldering, September 5th, 1900 in Rancher, Montana, and Lonnie Gordon, October 8th, 1915, in Arkansas. I did not catch the city. Two of those three ladies had whooping cough when they were children and survived. Whooping cough is the is the common name for pertussis. Do you know anything about whooping cough? Uh, you cough a lot. A lot. I don't know. I think, like, because of the vaccinations and how pervasive it has been or how aggressive the measures have been i that's not a thing that most people in the united states these days even have to worry about so oh i I don't really know anything about um they're actually we're on a rise for pertussis in the united states gee i wonder if that (laughs) anti-vaccination movement has anything to do with this (laughs) it's not quite the coronavirus Yeah, but it's almost like the world's seeing currently what happens when we don't have one vaccination (laughs) for one thing. Imagine if there's other things that we could actively prevent. Oh, it's so stressful. And like, honestly, it's like it's a rise in the United States, but there are other parts of the world who never got access to the vaccine or still having issues with it. Like, I think India is a big place for it. Political instability. Yeah warfare what we try to prevent with this vaccine again diphtheria tetanus which is what we covered last episode whooping cough or pertussis which is mostly caused by the bacteria bordetella pertussis there are other strains for it but that's that's the big one is named not after the cough but the rattle of the intake of breath that the person suffering from it makes after the fit of coughing that's gross yeah It can happen in all ages, but historically, whooping cough affects children more than any other age group. Uh, For instance, in 1920, when our women were working in 
infant mortality rates due to pertussis were 5,000 to 8,000 deaths annually just in the U.S., with 270,000 total cases of infection in the country. Yeah. Okay. So I actually got this information from an episode of This Podcast Will Kill You because I am a huge fan girl. I figured learning... Oh, no. We finally reached the point where we've become a podcast that is citing our research from other podcasts. <sighs> You're lucky I love you. But, like, at the same time, they are two doctors in epidemiology. I'm going to let them take the wheel on this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna be like if you want to know more about the like the way that it actually affects you and the epidemiology behind it and what kind of cell it infects and the history behind it I'm gonna let you head on over to them and go from there because they have a full hour plus long episode on it and my jaw dropped multiple times oh, multiple nice. times okay, cool. so go check it out because it's awesome do you have the mortality rates like per- percentage wise for those infected, I think it was twenty five percent. It was bad. Your child under five had like a one in four chance of dying yep. if they contracted yep. it. It's no bueno. Yeah, yeah, no shit. And what's crazy is that again, two out of three of our three ladies had whooping cough when they were children. So that's mm-hmm. they were like just yeah. hacking up a lung, uh, but they survived. Oof. And they ended up getting Good. like. They ended up getting their their higher education. So you got Pearl Kendrick, who got her Doctor of Science degree in bacteriology from Johns Hopkins University. You got Grace Eldering that uh, had some money troubles growing up and life bumps along the way. But she ended up with a Ph.D. in science from Johns Hopkins as well. And then Lonnie Garden got her B.S. in economics and chemistry. And that actually mutated into a like a short career as a dietitian at a mental institution in Virginia with shitty pay and board. But she left because she was like, yo, I got, I, I deserve more than this. They're like, sorry, we can only start you at $10 an hour, no benefits or paid time off or vacation. Ugh. So she left thinking this is fine, but she was told, you know, basically, quote, white male chefs would not want to take orders from a black female dietitian, unquote. You know what? It wouldn't be... A usual episode of the podcast if we didn't have some type of American racism just sprinkled in somewhere. Everywhere. It's it's awful. So, with the lack of funding via two wars and a Great Depression sandwiched in between, what do the heads of desperate, usually male-driven laboratories do? Pop quiz, Megan. Look for insider trading so that way they can make a buck off of the stock market. They uh, they hire young women that they can essentially pay less. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah as a cheap labor force that they can kind of dismiss. Yeah. You know, we're looking specifically at the Bureau of Health Laboratories for the Michigan Department of Health. The director, okay. whose first name I still don't fucking know, last name Young, chose to hire Pearl Kendrick with the promise to, quote, make it interesting for you and there's every chance for advancement, unquote. We've all been there. We all know that'll, that promise. We have. But the crazy part is that he actually delivered. That's how she got her PhD from Johns Hopkins. Oh, And that's okay, cool. also how Eldering got her PhD from Johns Hopkins as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so he put money into them and then put money into them to get to like to further their education because he wanted these 
mm-hmm. women to succeed, which is really not what you see a lot. So I was happy to read that and be very wrong about my initial impressions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so he hired her, Kendrick, in 1926. And then in 1928, he would pick up additional staff, which included Grace Eldering. So he made Kendrick the director of the lab in Grand Rapids, and Grace Eldering was put in as Kendrick's lab partner. So by 1932, there was a pertussis outbreak in Grand Rapids, and the two set off on a new mission to study the now widespread pertussis strain. That particular strain, the two found ways to grow it more quickly for the samples and activating it and then trying to kind of figure out what to do with it. Basically, they studied the shit out of this thing. Not only did they study the shit out of this thing, they created a community in Grand Rapids. Basically, um, health workers, local public workers, state health, parent-teacher associations, actual school systems, where if there was an outbreak or if there was a child who had it, they would give them a call and they would find themselves in that particular part of Michigan. Basically swab the small child, use their use their strains as a way to, uh, to figure it out. Because pertussis is not an easy bacteria to grow, usually. Yeah. Because it's such a specific bacteria that it only really attaches itself to one kind of cell in the human body you basically had to grow it in a person take the swab and go from there okay so just overall at that time hard to recreate in the yes which of course made it harder for people to create a vaccine for it because if you don't have enough strains to create Mm -hmm. more like to yield more vaccines or to yield more like tests for it you're not going to get an effective Mm -hmm. vaccine so these women were basically making a large-scale community and a large-scale way of like studying their organization was everything so nowadays you can just like get food for bacteria basically you can just order it like these little plates with specific things that bacteria will eat and you don't have to worry about it but back then you're like uh let's throw it on this thing of sheep's blood and see what happens oh lovely (laughs) it either wants it or dies and doesn't colonize let's see what happens okay if you're creating that lab environment for it there was a lot of that going on they got a lot of samples. They got a lot of a lot of good stuff. And they gained enough trust to get the permission to start an experimental general vaccine from the plethora of data and samples that they were able to collect. Mm-hmm. The response from Young was, quote, go ahead and do all you can with the pertussis if it amuses you, unquote. A very kind of backhanded yeah. kind of comment. Yeah. A little weird because, like, you're like, okay, you're financially funding this, but also you sound like you're really uninterested. Yeah. It was. That's weird. It, yeah. And it's like, well, you guys are doing stuff. Sure. Let me write you a check. That check was $1,250, not set for inflation. Okay. With inflation, we're looking close to $20,000. Okay. For, like, the period of the study or for, like, an annual setting? Uh, I think it was just for what they could get. (laughs) Okay. Be like, here, start with this. Good luck. Yeah, basically. They made those $20,000 last two years. 
And they did it with the community that they oh, set shit. up. Yeah. By the time they were done with that, they actually were like, well, what do we do? So they sent a an invitation to the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know if you've heard of her. I've, I've yeah. heard of her. Uh, <laughs> for like a tour of, of the lab. And she came in and she went through the tour and she was really excited. And she's like, I got you girls. And she funded the rest of what they needed because there was also talk of like these vaccines that were going to eventually happen. So for mm-hmm. the first two years in the first trial, they worked off the $20,000 budget. But after once they got to their next trial, which I'm going to get to in a second, they were secured about $2.8 million. Holy moly. Yep. Oh, my goodness. I like to think all their, like, unpaid hours that they put into those first two years definitely paid off with that. Yeah. It's insane. Like, it was it was straight up insane the amount of funding that went into into them. Oh, that must have been so gratifying. Yeah. They're like, ah, oh, yes, we love her. Like, the first lady was just like, ah. Yeah. First trial involved animal trials, and they had enough evidence to back that particular vaccine up that they were able to find support for a wide-scale vaccine trial in 1936 on actual people. Mm-hmm. At the time, it wasn't uncommon for scientists to use orphans in their trials. <laughs> they decided not to do that. They decided to go to school systems and get the okay. Oh, my God. Can you imagine be like, hey, guys, can we, like, not use children with dead parents? <laughs> like, I feel a little uncomfortable with that. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of orphans have just been sacrificed for scientific studies, uh, but can we not? Can we at least get someone to sign a permission slip? So, a fun fact, there are even scientists that wouldn't wait for the vaccine trial. They would just take orphans and infect them with the actual disease and see what happens. A.K.A. Charles Maitland and the smallpox vaccine. Straight up. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Quite a few ethical and moral issues Uh, in a situation like that. Quite a party, for sure. So, after... That first trial, they realized that there was, like, a 90% efficacy of their vaccine that they had created. Okay, so rather than your child have a one-in-four chance of dying if they contracted this, if they take this new vaccination, they have, like, a 90% chance of a cure. That's what you're saying? Of survival or having antibodies in their system enough for them to be able to fight it off. For them to not Or even to not have symptoms. Sometimes they, like... It's cool. I mean, it's a big jump. That is a big jump. So by the time they got to their second trial in 1938, people were lining up to get their kids inoculated with this vaccine. I mean, I would be yeah, too. They were like, yo, yes, give my kid inoculated right now. So they did that. And that also came up with this like close to 90% efficacy. So the, I think what was thought of with these guys was their organization and the entire thing. They were the the two people, who, the two leads of this. They were able to create such an organization and such a network of people, and they were constantly recording everything. They had a whole system in place, and that is what I think is attributed to their success. That organization. They still had an issue of finding the right strain to use in their vaccine because... You know, they had they had a vaccine that was working well, but they needed one that yielded a lot of a lot of vaccines, essentially. They needed to grow more of it. They needed to kill it. 
and they needed to make more of it, but they didn't know what to do, and that's where Lonnie Gordon steps in. She okay. was not a head of the department, but she worked tirelessly to find a strain that they could basically use, and one, like, and tirelessly to also find the correct substance that this thing wants to eat and colonize it. Mm-hmm. And it was, fun fact, sheep's blood. That's like a two-part search then of, like, finding a strain of the bacteria that works and grows quickly in the lab, but then also finding what material you can grow that bacteria in. Exactly. So that they can then kill okay. it and then use it in a vaccine. Harvest yeah, it. Essentially. Essentially. Um, and that's where Lonnie stepped in because she was the one who was checking every strain, checking all of the different mediums that she could use for it. We go from there. So it was... This vaccine was not a one-person effort. It was a whole orchestra of really amazing women who put their efforts in the best that Mm -hmm. they could and basically said, fuck you, we have standardization for this vaccine that works well, so take it or leave it. Because they had people who still said, no, there's no way you have a pertussis vaccine that works. 1940, the vaccine was distributed across the nation. 1943 was approved for routine use. And after that iteration of the vaccine was created, the Grand Rapids Laboratory was also the same laboratory to combine that vaccine with the diphtheria and tetanus vaccine, creating the first combo DDP vaccine used to vaccinate children. Okay. By 1949, that combo vaccine was finally approved for routine use across the United States. Mm -hmm. Again, that particular vaccine they have modified since then. You and I, from what I understand, we were actually vaccinated with the whole cell or the first one that they used. And I think around in the early 90s, they switched to a different kind of pertussis vaccine that used a different antigen and a different, not a different strain, but a different way of killing it and immobilizing it and sticking it in. So we have a pretty solid immune system. This newer vaccine, they they need boosters, essentially. Oh, so it just, it kind of switched up. Yes. From like a one shot and done to a, a multi-step Yeah. And I mean process. like the tetanus okay. vaccine is going to for 10 years. So if you're going to one up on the tetanus every 10 years, you might as well one up on the pertussis as well. It's not going to harm you. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, like that's that's the first successful one because of the organization and the community that they used. I'm glad to know that these women collectively really focus their efforts on contributing to something that is the reason, you know, you and I are talking here together and a lot of other adults and children are now healthy because we had that those preventive vaccinations so that way we're not all dying of disease vaccinate your children does wonders did i tell you that my sim daughter i have one who just takes her clothes off and runs around in public and i love her i wonder where she got that from I mean, you do it less in public, but still. I yeah, I've I've calmed down in the public. I just don't see why I need to be uncomfortable because people think the human body is scandalous. Fuck off. Go look at yourself in a mirror. Oh, you know what? Okay, we I've got a good bit of that on my segment today. Yeah, tell me. But before I can get to people being like, oh my god. Female bodies and sexualities. Gotta cushion it a little bit first. So I'm doing something a little different today with just how like terrible COVID-19 has been in everyone's lives. I thought I'd take a break from our usual. So economy's in the shitter. It's definitely in the shitter for creative professionals. When money's tight, not a lot of people still buy art. So today I'm going over why patrons of the arts are really important. Yay! 
from everyone who's dropping millions of dollars to us common folk who dropped 20 bucks on Etsy, it's important. So today I'm covering a pretty badass woman who, I mean, Lynn, I think you're really going to like. Because she also, well, she got naked a lot in private. <laughs> She's an art patron, sex worker, and empress of the Byzantine Empire. What? Theodora. That's it. Just one <laughs> name. Like Cher or Madonna. You know, you had me at sex worker, but the the empress uh, just just hooked me. I'm done. I'm Keep, keep going. I, yeah, she is our most royal individual that I've ever covered so far. So we are going very far back in time. Not quite Stone Age back or your fourth century Greek mathematician Hypatia back. R.I.P. Hypatia. Instead, we're going to the sixth century Byzantine Empire, also known, as I'm sure you already know, the Eastern Roman Empire. You know I didn't. Now you do. And now I do, too. I don't know that. So as you might imagine, in the 500s, which is really weird to be missing a digit from that, it was it was the territory was like essentially around the eastern half of the Mediterranean. So we're talking like scooping from Greece all the way down to Egypt. Ooh. And the capital, don't do the song, Constantinople. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I love that song. Well, yeah, I like yeah. the They Might Be Giants cover i'm not a big fan of the language in it but it's very catchy yeah well if you know as you know from that song it is now modern day istanbul in turkey istanbul oh my god (laughs) yeah so i mean before the fall of it it was a very wealthy very well fortified city that stood for like over a thousand years and it was probably about 497 ish that our theodore was born not in the capital, but likely elsewhere in the empire, probably somewhere that's like modern day Syria. And uh, it was a pretty low class working family. And all the documentation, like Theodora's mother, goes unnamed, which is kind of shitty, just how common that is for our research. But I do know the names of her two siblings. So her older sister, Kamatona, and then Anastasia. Nice. I named yeah. one of my sim children Anastasia. You would. Yeah. You would. And I'm still glad we got to see that Broadway show in Philly, even though it was like standing room only for our poorly cheap I almost tickets. fell over the balcony just because I was just like, yes. <laughs> it was still worth it. I mean, we could see like two thirds of the stage. So really, that's all that matters. So worth it. Yeah. So we know a little bit about her sisters, not that much about her mother and her dad had a way cooler job than any of her fathers a circus bear trainer (laughs) yep so theodore's dad got this job not long after she was born uh took the family to the capital constantinople and he was working at their main hub of like entertainment the hippodrome and that's where you went to see everything from trained bears perform to bet on chariot races i believe it is a monster truck rally of the 500s essentially yes that everyone's there drinking and betting and gambling sounds like a solid place for three young 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 ladies and their bear trainer father it definitely made for a very colorful upbringing but things were kind of shitty not long after they moved there because theodore's dad dies oh really I I don't know if it was from a bear, okay? None of the records I came across mentioned it. But essentially, that leaves Theodore's family fucked. I mean, single mom, three girls. So Theodore's unnamed mother, she hustles. 
she gets a new boyfriend and she has her girls plead with the leader of like their group to let their new quote stepfather take over their dead daddy's role as as a bear trainer as a bear trainer (laughs) so she just gets off on dating bear trainers no, I think she gets off of having financial stability for her family. <laughs> so she's able to rope this guy and be like, okay, I think if I can pull some strings, I can get you my old, my dead husband's That's job. not creepy. And that way we can still, you know, not starve to death and <laughs> live in poverty. I think that's that was more of what she got oh, off on. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So this is, I mean, Theodore is a baby at this point, but this is her first brush with politics. And just a little bit of context here. A city was divided into quadrants, red, white, green, and blue. And, like, think of them as clans. You know, and they, they each wanted to be the strongest and have, like, the best neighborhood in town and be the wealthiest. And it was the leaders of the Greens that Theodore's family, they were pleading to. And this is all in front of, like, a public audience of thousands. So Theodora's mom's got her girls being like, hey, let our new, quote, stepfather please take this job so we're not going to be super poor. And the audience was like, oh, my God, how are you going to deny these poor children that opportunity? And the Greens say no. What? Why? The leaders of, like, their clan essentially were like, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. I just don't understand that. Because, what, did they just have another bear trainer lined up? Like, what? How? many people wanted to be a part of that life it was probably a lot of politics but the bitter rivals of the greens the blues they're all like hey our bear trainer also just recently died you guys can come work for us (laughs) fucking why i know i know um so bear training back in the day had a um unsurprisingly high mortality rate oh no <laughs> and so Theodore's family were like, "Yeah, we're gonna come work for you, the Blues, fucking Greens." Uh, Theodora never forgot that at all. <laughs> yeah, um, and as we learned, like she she's not a woman to mess with. But the Greens were always on her shit list after right. that. So, like you kind of mentioned, like the Hippodrome was a bit of a rough area. And Theodore and her sisters, I mean, they grew up very street smart because of it, because that's just kind of the environment they were around. And once she was old enough, and by that a teen, Theodore is working as an actress to help support her family. Low ranking at first, but I mean, she was smart and she was really beautiful and she was enthusiastic for the job. I'm sorry, when you say actress, where does the sex work come in? Uh, The job was was sex work. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Historically, like, actress has been synonymous with sex work. Basically, the patriarchy has been all like, how dare a woman sell herself for money? She must be morally corrupt. Oh, no. So someone who's doing that on stage was equated with someone who's doing that, like, essentially on their back. Oh. So that's why we've got that kind of historical linkage throughout centuries, mm. That's why all the drama yeah. kids were horny. <laughs> that just might be a hormonal issue at that point. But um, she was very good at what she did, and she used it as her means to move up in life. Okay. So her clientele that she really focused on, the very wealthy upper class of the capital. I mean, if I did it, I'd, I'd be the same way. Go for the top, no matter what, uh, whatever job you're doing. Mm-hmm. You gotta be the best that you can be. So I'm, she was someone who was very forward with her sexuality, and at the time that shocked a lot of people, and I'm sure at the time that would still bother people today. <gasps> How dare you use your body for anything, ever? How dare a woman be sexual? 
and actually enjoy How sex. dare they poop? Oh, my God. Uh, I'm okay. Where did the pooping come know, from? I don't know. Just women using their bodies in general. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I can see that kind of creation. Yeah. <laughs> Like, oh my god, you're bleeding again uh, out of the hut. <laughs> you're impure. <laughs> we joke about it. People die because of that. All right. So she did not have to go in a hut when she had her period. Um, instead, it was a good thing that she had her period because she was working as a sex worker. So getting pregnant was an occupational hazard. And it, it did happen to her twice. And this is all before she's 17. Gross. Yeah. So she did have a girl. And then later she had a son that we do know went to live with his father. And they moved to um, somewhere in Arabia. Right. Theodore, like she realizes, even though at the moment she's the center of attention with all these very wealthy people, that's not going to last forever. Right. She's looking for a sugar daddy essentially what a true romantic i know i know she settles on a highish ranking government official who has just been appointed governor in a city that you know is now located in modern day libya so she's young she's in her like late teens early 20s at this point so she she travels hundreds of miles from the capital to be with him in this new area yeah and essentially like the distance traveled is equivalent to going from one side one coast of the united states all the way to the other oh no Hundreds and hundreds of not, miles. Not, not an option. Nope. Well, I just make note of that because she travels like over two thousand miles, and the relationship doesn't work out. Ew. Yeah, yeah. So she has to make it all the way back to the capital. What happened? Do you know that. why it went down? I it, nothing explicit was mentioned. It just didn't work out between the two of them. You know what happens. Yeah. So Theodora road trips it back to Constantinople. <laughs> Istanbul. <laughs> she gets religious along the way. This kind of like um, spiritual, mystical kind of subsect of Christianity. Mm. She meets her best friend, Macedonia. Yeah, and Macedonia. She's also into the weird same type of like subsect of Christianity that Theodora is into as well. Mm. The both of them end up back in the capital, and before long, Theodora has fallen for the future emperor of the empire, Justinian. Um, was was he about that life? He was about that life. Uh, oh, okay. It wasn't like some weird fangirl stalking her, like, celebrity crush, right? No. So she gets back to the capital, like, for a little bit. She's working um, as a wolf spinner mm. so a, a little bit more of like a respectable job he meets her falls head over heels and it just goes about like wooing her immediately well then yeah love at first sight and it's kind of cool because you know he like lavish her lavishes her with gifts and trinkets because she's someone who likes like the finest things right. in life so she totally eats that up but one of the sweetest things he did was legit change the laws so they could legally be together oh that's yeah. actually kind of sweet. It's super sweet. So he's the nephew to the emperor. So he's part of like the royal class. Mm-hmm. She's a commoner. He needs to get special legislation signed in order to allow them to be together. Because right. like as a mistress, you know, he can that can totally be a thing. But if he wants her as his wife, he's got to get that special permission. Correct. Right. So he does. He gets signature from the emperor. But the emperor only signed it after his wife died. Yikes. Because the Empress at the time hated Theodora. Oh, no. Yeah, she kind of had that polarizing effect on people. But, I mean, overall, she's a woman who's playing the game, and that's instantly going to put off a lot of people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, because she's ambitious and she's driven and she knows how to play the political game and she knew, she knows how to use her body to get what she wants and to move up. And so that right there, a lot of people, even today, would be like, no, that is indecent. How yeah, dare you? Yeah, yeah, Oh. So, I mean, the two of them, they're, they really make the perfect power couple. Aww. Justinian is in a great position to move into the top political ranks and Theodora, she knows how to make that happen. And the two of them, they're both very driven, very determined and both very willing to do whatever it takes to get what For they sure. want. So even to the upper class, like Theodora was an outsider and like worse, she was like a whore. Gasp! I know, she was smart. She knew her way around and before long, she had like a good many of the court's women on her side. I feel like she had to keep allies. And she knew how to do that. So her best friend that she brought along, she's in the mix too. Right. Later on, she's able to like form some political unions like through marriages with her family, like her her daughter that she had later down the line. You know, she's able to like, you know, kind of form these alliances. So she knows how to form those dynamics for mutual benefit for people. But I mean, mostly for her benefit. I mean, like all this is taking place around 523. She's like only in her 20s. You and I would be in way over our heads. What were we doing in our early 20s? I trying to figure out if we had health insurance or not. <laughs> we'll go into class at university. Like, oh, no. yeah, being like, okay, how much money do I have? Okay, um, if I go out tonight, can I have a? Can I get a shot of tequila? How much money's in my bank account? Like, why is the cat wet? Yeah, like, <laughs> okay, I have class. Like, do I have enough time to get that work done? Like, we would not have been up for nope. any of this. Like, this is not all. our thing. Yeah, Theodora, she's doing some really crafty political maneuvering. And by 527, Justinian is crowned the next emperor of the Byzantine Empire, which makes Theodora the goddamn empress. Work her way up. She did. She could be ruthless. And leading up to that, I mean, she did what was needed to ensure his role. She blackmailed. She intimidated. And she even ordered hits on people. Yeah. Other people are doing the same damn thing. I mean, it is the game, but still, not a great person. I know. You're not going to like this bit. So, some years after becoming empress, her son, the one who moved away to live with his dad, learned who his mother was, and he travels back to Constantinople to see her. Theodora grants him a private audience, and the teen was never seen from again. No. Nope. No. Yeah. Yeah, she probably totally had her own son killed, so he wouldn't be a threat to her political power. Yeah. Nope. But for as much of a hard ass as she could be, Theodore was also a great supporter of the arts, which is why we're here. I know. I know. She's a little, she's, she's questionable. Okay. But she's interesting. She's interesting. Tell me more. Okay. So being empress of a goddamn empire grants you access to a good bit of disposable income. Theodora, she knew how to use it. And she obviously liked the finer things on life. Like, okay, get this. She took a bath every day. <gasps> how dare she? I know, I know, talking about a snob. And she really was the power player behind Justinian, and historically things are credited to him, but that's only because she pissed off a lot of people. Theodora had a large role in funding national creative projects and thus employing a good many artists in the process. Okay. Yeah, which, again, that's why we're here. So for the time, there wasn't a division in the arts and crafts, so the portrait painter was just as much an artist as, like, the metalsmith. Mm-hmm making gold chalices. Oh, that's interesting, because my money would have been on statues. Lots and lots of statues. Actually, that fell out of fashion in the Byzantine Empire. There's there's next to no statue work. How are you supposed to know who was the big bad of the time? 
tile mosaics. Like? In churches. Uh, oh, dear. And that's exactly what she funded. So, like, typical of an empire where the they decree the ruler as appointed by God, most of the money went into religious work. So Theodora and Justinian, they commissioned a crap ton of churches. Oh. Most well-known being the Hagia Sophia. Why does that sound familiar? It is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And for the time it was made, early 500s, it was a absolute architectural marvel. Big church with a big oh. dome. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, kind of unique because it at first was a Christian church and then a Catholic one and then a mosque and now it's a museum. But it's like one of the top tourist attractions in Turkey. Oh. So it was filled with these mosaic portraits. And they're a great example of Byzantine art, you know, where they kind of blend these images of royals and, you know, religious figures. Right. And, like, stylistically, everyone's a little cartoony. They're, they're all very stiff and forward-facing with these elongated bodies, and they have these very large eyes. Oh. And they're the people that, like, threw on gold halos on just about everyone. Oh, so they were really tacky. I mean, you said it, not me. Okay. <laughs> It's not it's not terrible tacky work. It's just that was like the style they went really heavy on at that point. Now, because of the religious content of the work, it was considered bad taste for the artists to sign their name. Oh. So in the whole of the artists that Theodora supported, we really don't have surviving individual accounts of the artists that benefited. Oh no. Yeah. Now, like as a whole, Theodora is a part of a long line of women asserting themselves through art patronage. Because right. I mean politically when you're not included at the table with all the men, that was one way to kind of subvert things and really, like, assert yourself. Right. And kind of, you know, flex, too, with how you're spending money. You're like, I'm important, bitch. Yeah, it was just a different way of kind of going about it. Right. So, Because sometimes the men, you know, would be like, well, we're going to take care of the important matters. You can take care of the mm. art. But, I mean, that held a lot of political sway. Right. I mean, like, with what Theodore is doing. Okay. Because, like... A lot of people were like, oh, my God, you're terrible. And she's like, uh, excuse me, how many churches did I just build? Because I'm pretty sure in quite a few of them, I'm, like, essentially depicted as a Virgin Mary. Like, oh, God. Have you not seen my mosaic portrait? No. <laughs> I know. I know. But that's what – it's not necessarily that they were doing that to feed her ego. It's just within that empire – you know, the emperor and the empress were equated along with the other top holy figures of the Virgin Mary and mm. Jesus. Wonderful. I mean, think of it. Kings and queens do that crap all the time. You know, that's, I feel like. So that's exactly, that's what she was feeding into. That's what the the owner of Hobby Lobby does and Trump. I just, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you see that article of how he continued to keep his stores open because God talked to him, straight to him, about keeping them open, his his hobby stores, and then not paying hazard pay? There's a lot of really problematic things going on right now, one of them being that if you're a true Christian, God will save you and you won't get COVID-19 and die. I feel like that's great to have your faith, but... That's not how this game Let's works. Let's not be stupid. Oh, God, that's the whole... Yeah. No, I don't even want to get into something like mm. that. But, yeah. Basically, she was totally just as guilty as all these other... Right. ...rulers of equating right. themselves with, you know, godliness. But, again, to be fair, I mean, she was pumping a lot of money into the economy and supporting a lot of artists because okay. of it. So... 
one of the cool things she also did when she was like not kind of doing art patronage she was also um really involved in legislative matters her husband let that happen yeah so after she passes away his legal work essentially comes to an end and that's in part i think because she was really the one pushing it and driving him to make these changes but she really focused too on making things a little bit more equal for women and that's something she did of her own accord oh interesting so she helped change some laws that um, didn't make things equal, but when it came to things like property ownership and divorces and dowries, women held a little bit more sway. Oh, what? See, like, at times, she's really terrible, but she's also really great. So this is cool. She also really focused on child sex work. I mean, like, sex work as a whole, she had no issues with. But, you know, for children to be doing it, she was not okay with that. So she bought them all out of slavery in the capital. Gave them money and sent them Seriously? Home. Yeah. She, she bought up all their contracts. Holy shit. And was like, no. That's insane. I mean, it's I know. great. So it's like, great insane. But what? So she, I don't know. She's like, she's like the dandy equivalent of like chaotic neutral. Yeah, but it's like chaotic neutral also like have people assassinated. Yeah. Because that, yeah. that, oh, okay. <laughs> if it benefits her, she's fine. <laughs> And, yeah, I mean, that's a good part of her driving force where things do benefit her. But, I mean, in this instance, it's a good thing because it benefited a lot of other yeah, people. Yeah, holy shit. Right? Like, I mean, she could be really awesome, but she could also be very cutthroat. Just so special. And, you know, like you asked about her passing laws, one thing that's unique about her relationship with Justinian is that they're described as co-rulers. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Now, one thing the two of them did that pissed off a lot of people is spend a lot of money. Because of that, they essentially were making up taxes and increasing the existing taxes Mm. in order to have more money to cover Mm -hmm. things. Pissed off a lot of people, and that kind of blew up in their face around 532. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the public wasn't happy about it, and it actually brought together those rival clans, the Greens and the Blues, and they started rioting and were after Theodora and Justinian. They wanted blood. Oh, no. What happened? Well, Justinian was like, oh, my God. I'm going to die if I don't leave. So uh, there was a cabinet meeting and the emperor was being advised to, like, get out of the capital. They had a ship waiting right. to get him out. Theodora is listening quietly. And then she went, Ahem, we're not bitches. We're not leaving. Mm. So Okay. So that wasn't her speech. But what she did say is credited with being one of the greatest short speeches ever recorded. And you can read it on her show notes. But essentially, she was like, we're not cowards. We fight. Oh, wow. So, I mean, think again. As a co-ruler, she turns to the general and is like, round up all the rioters, put them in the hippodrome, and she has them slaughtered. Stop! Yeah, like 30,000 people approximately 30,000? Three, zero, 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 zero. Yep. No. But, I mean, hey, writers were not an issue after I that. Don't, I don't know how I feel about her. I know. It's a bit of a roller coaster of a doozy of, like, she assassinates people to get to the top politically. But then also she, like, spends a lot of money for, like, artisans and, like, pumps a lot into the economy. But also they're, like, taxing. Kills writers. Like, people yeah and then kills like rioters but also hey she like 
frees all these child sex slaves I'm and like so confused i know it's yeah it's a bit of a doozy it hurts my head now come 548 theodora dies okay she, she's only about 50 at this point oh that's that's um, long for that time though right I don't have average lifespan rates because the numbers are kind of shit for, you know, 6th century Byzantine Empire. Right. But, I yeah, I assume that's that's a good age. Her husband did live to be in his 80s. Right. We think Theodora died probably because of cancer. Oh. That's a shit way yeah, to go. Yeah, so, I mean, think of all her political scheming. I mean, thank God that didn't come to bite her in the yeah. ass. Uh, I have feelings... They're mixed and confused. Yeah, Theodore is not necessarily a good guy in this story, but she's interesting and she supported the art. So I was like, you know what? Let's let's go for it. A little different today. (laughs) No. So unsurprisingly, people started talking shit about her after she died. Right. But not too soon after she died. Uh, A leading historian of the day, who was very much part of like the boys' club. His bitch ass waited two years before bad-mouthing her in his writings. Oh, come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, even worse, like, he intentionally left her out of his writings at times, too. So that's one reason why it's really tough to get, like, definite details on just how much she contributed in her art patron work because men literally wrote her out of history. Oh, see, at least people didn't write men out of history. If you were a shitty human being, we knew exactly what you did. Yeah, and I mean, she arguably is a shitty human being, but we only kind of know somewhat of what she did. (laughs) Which makes you wonder, what don't we know? And if anything, I'd wager there's probably a lot more positive stuff that she did do, but people who really didn't like her downplayed that or just straight up didn't write about it. Oh. And they really amped up all the bad qualities about her and I, I feel like a lot of it was overblown because they just wanted to talk shit about her i could see that and that one leading historian definitely did that so i mean let's haul or like quantify just how large of a driving impact she had in sixth century byzantine right. art she was a huge driving right. force and like i said like her husband lived another 17 years he passed away in 565 at the age of 83 so i feel like that's a really good age for I mean, just the sixth the, century yeah. in general. <laughs> like, ancient. I know. I mean, wh- that's like equivalent to how many bear trainers <laughs> lifetime. Oh, no. uh. <sighs> so Theodore, she's not an artist. She does break her format. But with her contributions, I thought she'd be a good fit. Even though she's the empress of a goddamn empire, like, you as a mere commoner can support the arts, too. Buy $20 art pieces or more. Buy more art because, uh, yeah, artists who depend on art sales as their livelihoods, they're hurting right now. And, I mean, shit, even those of us who have day jobs are hurting now, too. So you don't have to be empress of an empire to support artists. No. So do what you can. Keep them not... financially in mind. Just Yeah, that one. That thing. So be like badass Empress Theodora of the Byzantine Empire. Liberate underage sex slaves. Have a political enemy assassinated and uh, go buy some artwork. Don't have 30,000 people massacred just because you like taking a bath every day. That's a, that's a, don't be like her that way. And also don't have your illegitimate son killed. Just, just don't do it, guys. Don't do it. Yeah. 
let's not massacre people. Um, just stay home and wash your hands and hope, you know, you don't contribute to, you know, the poor health of one human. Be kind. Yeah. That's all I got today. That was a roller coaster. I don't know. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate your support as well. And if you really want to support us, you can make a contribution on our website through PayPal to be either a one-time or monthly supporter. Anything you've got totally helps. So, Milena, if people are looking to learn more about who we've covered, where can they find out more? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Our email is info at myfavoritefeminist. Our Facebook and Instagram are also under myfavoritefeminist. And our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can listen to us on TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Music. And if you wouldn't mind, it takes two seconds to rate, subscribe, comment, and in that comment section below, let us know. What would you train a bear to do? Megan? I don't know. I'm always cold. So it could just give me a really good bear hug. Aww. So I guess the trick is to teach it not to, like, slaughter me in the process. Because <laughs> I'm kind of snack size. And I would worry about that. You I would are worry. snack size. I love you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I love you, too. What would you train a bear to do? This may seem... Like, really stupid, but I would like to get my dog, like, an emotional support bear. All right. My eyes are just falling out. I rolled them so hard. <laughs> no, I, I, he just needs a buddy and a friend that's not me. And if it's a bear, that'd be cool. Are we talking, like, a miniature bear or, like, a full-size, no, like, grizzly like bear? Like, a full-size bear. He'd be his buddy. I just want a pet bear, and I want a pet that my dog can get along with. You just want something else that, like, makes people cross the street more than the fact that you have a pit bull. Like, they're not crossing the street to go on the other side because of the dog anymore. It's because of the goddamn bear with the dog. But it's my dog's emotional support bear, and they love each other so much. It would be so cute, and I would, I would be so happy. I don't care about people. Let me love my animals let me love them. I would take up the entire sidewalk in West Philly. You would take up the entire elevator to my apartment floor. <laughs> but as we learned from last episode, don't take the left one because that's the one that caught on fire. <laughs> well, we'll stick to the right one. Right. It's fast. still down. That elevator's still down, by the way. <laughs> oh. I'm never using it again. <laughs> um, all right. As always, guys, we really appreciate it. You guys are really wonderful. And until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Hey, guys. Guess what? Our bear trainer just died. <laughs> Yesterday, and this is not helping my situation. <laughs> at all. So did I. So did I. Oh, it'll be worth it though.